it never does to derive the knowledge of the past because someday our own knowledge will be the knowledge of the past. Ladies and gentlemen, People hear about Loch Ness and everything. It's some kind of unique thing. Uh, but it isn't really unique at all. That's the whole point. And it, the, 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 especially for people who are listening across the United States and part of Canada, they've got to realize that, of course, you don't have to go to Loch Ness or to Africa or whatever to actually look for lake monsters. They're actually probably somewhere nearby to you. There seem, in fact, to be several kinds. This is the thing that people have to get out of their minds, I think, that we're dealing with one kind of animal all the time. There are clearly variations mm -hmm. of these creatures. But that's a debate for another day. I'm not getting into that. Yeah, that's I'm probably an understatement that for sure, yeah. That's out of, <laughs> that's, as they say, that's out, outside my comfort zone. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio, with your host, Tim Banal. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of BOA Audio Season 9. On this edition of the program, very excited about this conversation we're about to have, because as I was just saying to our guest, it covers two realms, in a way, of the esoteric. We're going to be looking at the lake monsters phenomenon, which is a topic we haven't covered yet on the program before. And equally exciting to that is that we're going to be talking to Peter Costello, who wrote a pioneering book on lake monsters way back in 1974 titled In Search of Lake Monsters. It really is a seminal classic in the realm of cryptozoology books and paranormal books, really, in general. And Thankfully, through our good friends at Anomalous Books, In Search of Lake Monsters is being reissued now for the modern audience on over 40 years since its original publication. And Peter has been very gracious enough to uh, come on the program, discuss the book, discuss uh, lake monsters, and uh, we've been trying to get this conversation going for a couple of months now. Uh, he is all the way over in Ireland, and I am here, obviously, in the United States, and between the springtime and the time difference and all that stuff, it's been nearly impossible to schedule something. But finally, today, we're going to sit down and talk to Peter Costello about In Search of Lake Monsters and 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 sort of those days back in the 70s when he was doing all this work and, and put out the book in the first place and how cryptozoology itself has changed over the years. So I'm very excited about this conversation. I've been looking forward to it for quite some time. Welcome to the program, Peter, and thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. I'm delighted to, to be able to talk to you and to your audience. I think it's going to be a really uh, fun and enlightening conversation. Now, we like to start things out. This is kind of a little bit different here in a way because, uh, you know, your bio background kind of contains a lot of the a lot of the uh, research into the lake monsters. So we don't want to go too much into the bio background. But tell people a little bit about who is Peter Costello. What? What's that? Well, as you were just saying, I, 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 I currently live in Ireland and I was where I was, where I was born. Um, and I, I'm a, the, 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 I was, went to school there, but I also went to my, we emigrated, my family emigrated to America. So I went to an American university. I was at the, I'm a graduate of the, um, University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. 
um, where my where my father was an academic. So I lived in America and then lived in other countries as well. So there's a lot of personal background in the sense of this, but it's it's it, this is only one of my my my, my interests. But unfortunately, this was the interest that in, in a way that started earliest when I was in my teens. You were just saying um, research in the 70s. Well, the research, to, to tell the truth, actually went back 10 years before that, as research does, to the, uh, the early 1960s. Mm. Um, at that time, when I was still at school, we we pick up these enthusiasms in our teens, I think, and you know something, they never let us go, so <laughs> we yeah. may think they have let us go, but, but they're still there donkey's years later. Mm. Um, and I, I can see, sort of looking through this book again, that there are references to Jules Verne and Conan Doyle, who are people that I later wrote biographies of. So, you know, we, 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 we become what we are in our teens, I think, we, we, whatever, whatever we're told by psychologists. Um, so at the, that time in the 1960s, there was a very famous incident at Loch Ness um, where Tim Dinsdale, an aeronautical engineer, managed to take a film. And this was the first time for many years that, that actually anything had been really done at Loch Ness in a serious way. And this got on a major news program on the BBC, and there was much talked about. And he then, Tim Dinsdale, wrote a series of books, and that was what really captured my interest. Hmm. But from that then, I um, I also went on to read Bernard Hovelman's, uh, the, 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 who the man is now, the, the Belgian zoologist who's called the, the father of cryptozoology. And it's really back to Bernard's sort of wide-ranging um, research into all kinds of mysterious animals, but also especially into, into marine animals um, that, that actually went into some uh, some of my, uh, stimulated my research. And I, I simply, the other thing was we had a houseboat, uh, as, as many people in America do. We had a boat on, on, on the river system in Ireland and uh, on the lakes, on the Shannon. There were reports of um, lake monsters in a lakes I knew very well in Loch, Loch Ree and Loch Derg. And you can't be in places like that without trying to, trying to look into it. So once you start collecting the stories, the stories begin to mount up. So um, the, the Loch Ness was, was Loch Ness. I read the books on, and then I um, researched the Irish lakes, um, and then when I also did some uh, research into into Scandinavian lakes in, in in Norway and Sweden. And then, of course, when we when we emigrated to America. Um, when I should have been really studying English literature at, at the University of Michigan, I was I was actually as often as not to be found in the, in the microfilm li- library reading back <laughs> copies of the New York Times in search of monsters. Yeah. Um, so it actually began to build up a kind of worldwide dimension, which is which is what is in the book, and I, I think that's very often a thing that's overlooked because people hear about Loch Ness and everything; it's some kind of unique thing. Uh, but it isn't really unique at all. That's the whole point. And it, the, 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 especially for people who are listening to across the United States and part of Canada, they've got to realize that, of course, you don't have to go to Loch Ness to, to, or to Africa or whatever to actually look for lake monsters. They're actually probably somewhere nearby to you. Um, and if you go back, you were talking about the history. If you go back in time in the United States with talk about it for a minute you you the the first reports of sea serpents in the New England coast go back to very early colonial times to the seventeenth century and then you have um they 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 was a great big mass of them at the the early part of the nineteenth century um and but then as as the the, the colonies moved westward um 
the course of empire, so to speak, moved westward into the Great Lakes and then beyond that into, into the mountains, uh, the Rocky Mountains. There were lake, lake monsters reported in the Great Lakes and then in a whole chain of the lakes that are in the Rocky Mountains, probably um, right down to, right down from sort of the um, Lake Okanagan up in British Columbia, right down to California. So that's the thing. In America, you, the Americans have a great opportunity, I think, to, to not only to investigate the past monsters, but in fact to investigate the current monsters. So, um, Absolutely, yeah. Okay, so that's kind of the bio background. You, uh, what I think is amazing, it should be pointed out too, like we, we mentioned here, I mean, this is all, all this sort of, uh, all this research you were doing was in the, you know, between the mid 60s to the mid 70s. Uh, prior to the publication of the book. It's just tremendous. I can see why it's a seminal classic in a way, because back then it was it had to be nearly impossible to gather the sort of information unless you were doing the legwork that you were doing. You know, you were luckily in the United States, so you could do that, and well, you had a foot in Europe, so you could kind of, you, you, you know, that's why the book is tremendous, because it combines all these, it's a global book, which... uh would be exceedingly uh, maybe difficult actually, in that time, time of... Uh, maybe easier a bit now in, in, in the Internet age to do some kinds of research, but I, I still think from sort of a spot-checking on, on what can be available, for instance, on the, the Library of Congress um, newspaper site, there's still a lot more material to be found out there. And it looks as though it might be easier to do it, but when you, when you actually find these historical reports, you then have to, of course, investigate the background to them and so on. But... Um, Certainly the Internet age and, and the digital age has made things easier in one way. However, it's also made it more difficult in another way because with, 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 with Photoshop and God knows what, oh, <laughs> all, yeah, the, yeah. all those, 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 those pranksters that are out in cyberspace um, are also at work. So, you know, it, things have got, got easier in one way and suddenly got more difficult in another way. So, Absolutely, yeah. Now talk a little bit about... Bernard Hovelmans. I'm sure I butchered that name. I feel like I got it close, though, so maybe not. But Bernard Bernard Hovelmans, uh, you said, you know, the father of, of modern cryptozoology, well, your father, you know. It's, he was actually, he was actually a, 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 a Belgian who was settled in Paris, and he had started out as a, as, as, as a, a scientist who then took up scientific journalism, but he became particularly interested in and the whole question of whether whether there were unknown animals still to be found at large in the world, and his research was actually initially inspired by um, Ivan T. Sanderson, whose name would be familiar, mm -hmm. I, I expect, to, to many many of your your listeners. Um, a man with a with a with a great range of of, of interests, one way or another, um, with with and, and um, with whom. Bernard at a later stage was involved in, in, in um, the, 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 to bringing to public attention the mysterious Minnesota Iceman, but that's a that's another day's work I think mm -hmm. to discuss. But anyway, Bernard Bernard published a very a very um, 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 seminal book in 1955 in French called uh, uh, um, On the Track of Unknown Animals, which was translated into English in 1958 and uh, scored a huge great a huge success. Um, and, and, and it, it revealed to, to, to the, in, in the preface to the, to the English edition, Gerald Durrell, the, the writer, was sort of saying that he'd often thought he would like to do a book like, like that. But when he saw the amount of um, work that Bernard had done, he just realized he hadn't even scratched the surface that Bernard had really explored it. Um, 
in, in, in far greater far greater depth and he just simply showed people what was re- what was being reported what was there what had been found and he put it into a whole new dimension but it was a dimension that was created by by a, a reputable and fully qualified zoologist so it actually had it's great clout hmm. um, in a way that a lot of the writings about this this question of are there sea serpents, are there mysterious animals and whatever um, didn't have before. It gave it that kind of scientific um, uh, concrete foundations um, from which a great deal flowed afterwards um, one way or another and it still continues on in, in sort of the work of, of, of people like Lauren Coleman and uh, Jerome Clark and people like 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 uh, of that kind. Mm, yeah. Um, but he was he went on to write a, then a long series of books, not only about about the, the the unknown animals generally, but then about the sea serpent and the giant squid, and then a, a, about um, a mysterious animals in Africa and 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 where, uh, there's some of which some of which were a very long time getting into 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 English. Um, but which are probably now not quite as well read, uh, widely read as they ought to be. Um, and of course, this once it, once once the the system started going, and people realised there was something to be to be investigated, a lot of a lot of people piled in. Mm, yeah, that's what I was going to say. By the mid the seventies, there was quite a, a new enthusiasm about the whole question of whether there were were creatures in Loch Ness. Mm. Which is when 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 the book was published in 1974, um, just shortly afterwards, and the paperback edition came out. There was a, a a great deal of publicity that was given to a series of photographs by um, that, that had been taken in Loch Ness by the the, the Ryan's editor and team as to and what they showed, and at that that the, the the that was a great build up to that. And then I think a lot of the press were disappointed. Uh, one of the things that, that plays into all of this is the reaction of the press about things. If 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 you're if people read the, the the actual reports and material, you get a very different impression to what you often get when you actually read a popular article about it in the press. Um, you know, the, 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 the press is often not not very. Uh, it, it tends to make fun sometimes of these things, or to uh, um, which, of course, you and, and your listeners are, will be familiar with. Yeah, it's absolutely. Yeah. To, to deride and make fun of things you don't, we don't fully understand, rather than actually um, uh, patiently investigate them. The investigation is the bit that's hard work. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, Berner's book took from 1940, 45 to 19, right to the end of his life in, in the 80s. So, and, and sort of. A, Ten years of, or more of work went into into, into 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 my book. So you know, don't think it's all going to get in, get done in six weeks. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, absolutely, yeah. Well, it's interesting, you know. It's uh, you say, you know, he was inspired by Ivan T. Sanderson. It's like just remarkable when you think about it, because nowadays there's just you can't go too far in paranormal circles without tripping over a cryptozoologist. But this was like back in the day when. You know, there really wasn't even that term. It was like such a such a raw early field. It's remarkable to think about. Uh, you know, like 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 your book. It's it's it. You know, it, it brought all this stuff to the surface for so many people for the first time. It's amazing. Well, I think too that to that, that, that one of the things is that it brought to it all. It's also brought to the, the, the surface a lot of a lot of sort of rubbish, but I, um, which is inevitable because I remember. Uh, Lauren Coleman uh, mentions in his in, in his introduction about how there was sort of a lot of um, p- 
popular paperbacks, which really didn't always do 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 the subject much good or cryptozoology. But I think that the, the people who persisted in it, say like Lauren again, um, are, 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 have have sort of laid aside a, a vast amount of of, of research. Um, which I think is hardly ever absorbed in a way. I mean, it's, it's, it's to read it all would be, would be, it would be, uh, uh, be like reading, reading the literature of, 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 about ghosts. It's just beyond, beyond anybody to do. Um, one has to concentrate on a small part of it, but then when you concentrate on the small part of it, you may actually be missing something essential somewhere else. Mm. Um, and I think that was one of the things that I was trying to do, that rather than write another book, as I, as, as I say in the, my own press, about Loch Ness. I wanted to actually give it the larger worldwide dimension. And uh, the, 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 in, in, for instance, Loch Ness in Scotland isn't actually a unique there either. There are lots of reports from other Highland, Scottish Highland lakes, um, which are less well known, but they also go back in time. Uh, the, the earliest reports um, of Loch Ness go back to, to, uh, to, to late Celtic times, to, to an Irish saint um in 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 five five sixty um a d but you know there were reports throughout the victorian period the nineteenth century um about lake monsters in in Scottish lakes, but they didn't actually take off until the nineteen thirties um when when the newspapers sort of um seized upon it in a new in a new kind of way mm. but by making Loch Ness so famous they then Distracted everybody's attention from other um, reports, not only in North America, as I say, but South America, Africa, Australia, Asia, um, you know, all around the world. Right, right. Yeah, Loch Ness kind of cast a shadow over the whole idea of lake monsters, and in turn, yeah. you know, it's kind of like a rising tide lifts all ships. So if if people are really into Loch Ness, they're going to be a little bit more interested in some of these other topics. But you know, nowadays Loch Ness is kind of it's kind of fallen by the wayside of the of the big paranormal stories, and in turn, you can kind of see that lake monsters also are kind of, you know, uh, easily taking a backseat to to like Bigfoot uh, as the sort of primary uh, mystery of cryptozoology. It seems. Well, I I think this may be this may be this may be due to a to, to a sort of uh, um, American dominance of the media. Maybe yeah. I, I, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's it's probably. Um, it's, 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 you know, if, if you've got a, a large population and a large continent, you can certainly generate a lot, lot of material, um, that, that will, will, will sort of, um, overwhelm everybody else. But then the whole point about, again, about, um, the, 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 the question of, 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 as we'll just say, Sasquatches are, the interest in them derived in a way out of, out of work that had been done even by, by Bernard Hovmans on, on, on the Yeti in, in the Himalayas. And, on, on, and then on, on other creatures in Central Asia. So again, that has a, that's a, as, as Ivan Sanderson pointed out in, in, in his book about the uh, unknown hominids, that that has a worldwide dimension as well. Mm, absolutely. Um, it's just not North America. It, it's right across the European, um, Asian and North American landmass, but also perhaps in, in, in parts of Africa and also maybe even, even down in Australia. And one of the, the exciting things was, I mean, these miniature people that were found in the, uh, um, the island of Flores, yeah. they're exactly described in Bernard Hubman's book, the, 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 the Little Man. And I, it's one of the things that seems very strange to me, how this scientific discovery is made and nobody credits, credits 
um, the, the background research that was done by Barnett. It just showed exactly what could happen when the, the groundwork was laid, and he showed he traced the whole history of these these small um, hominids right back into the time of Prester John and earlier. So, um, you know, you have to bear in mind all the time that there's, there's a there's a past history and a worldwide dimension to to it all. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, if you were to, I mean, you obviously looked at this lake monsters phenomenon for a very, very, very long time. If you were to sort of like venture a guess, what's your, what's your idea of sort of how many we're talking about as far as how many, how many lakes or bodies of water, uh, maybe, maybe exclude, I guess lake monsters. Yeah, we're not going to talk about well, stuff. I, I, those, I, you know what I mean? What's your, well, what's your in, best on guess that on point, I numbers? think that we, we, that we've got, we've got to, to also think that not, that they're not necessarily going to be everywhere. In the book, the point is made that these creatures that, that we're talking about seem to be, um, mostly found in steep, sloped, um, mountain lakes. Now that they're, that you find this in, in, in Norway, in Sweden, in Scotland, in parts of um, right through the, as I say, the Rocky Mountains. Now, one, but also as well, they must be related in some way, as Barnard pointed out, and as, as is quite clear that we're talking about the same kind of creatures as have been reported for for thousands of years in the sea. Right? They were talking about sea serpents. Now, the problem about it is that that um, when you get an idea that that word serpent, people say, oh well. That must be that it's it's a reptile. Now the thing is, of course, that they, they they because these animals move through the water with a sinuous motion, they look as though they're like a a, a, a snake. But it doesn't necessarily mean that they are snakes or reptiles at all. And this the kind of this kind of um, putting a name on something has actually um, sort of confused the issue because essentially, I, the, I, my theory is that the, these animals are actually mammals. They're they're sort of long necked seals. Now that doesn't the, the the most popular theory is of course that they were surviving plesiosaurs as long necked um, dinosaurs from from the age of a great age of reptiles um, with a sort of past million year history, but. The problem people have to remember is that um, the environment consists of uh, ecological niches. And to survive in a particular kind of ecological niche, an animal needs perhaps a certain um, appearance or a certain shape. And the plesiosaurus was filling an ecological niche in the age of the reptiles that would now be filled by a similarly shaped mammal-like creature. So it's actually quite biologically sound in a way. Um, but the thing, the thing, thing about it is that this obviously re- re- relates to, 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 to the long-necked sea serpents, of which there seem, in fact, to be several kinds. This is the thing that people have to get out of their minds. I think that we're, we're dealing with one kind of animal all the time. The, there are clearly variations mm-hmm. of of these creatures. Um, and the other thing is that that there may not not all the lake monsters may, in fact, be um, sort of um, mammals. I mean, in South America, people are. The 1922 now, in one of the chapters in my book, is called the Patagonian Plesiosaurus. In 1922, there was a scientific expedition went off into the the the, the, the Andes searching for a a, a a Patagonian Plesiosaurus. This was and it was it was that had been reported 
in a lake, but it turned out, in fact, that there have been previous reports, and there were reports in the, there up into the 1960s when my book was written. And now there's a whole um, tourist industry built around <laughs> the Patagonian Plesiosaurus. Um, now there the, and, and reports reports are still continuing. So, um, so I'm not sure that it is a Plesiosaurus, but it's now been nicknamed that. Um, but I think that, that a lot of people also would, would, would still like to think that they're, they're a surviving, a surviving prehistoric monster. That's actually what feeds into some of, of when you see illustrations in newspapers, not by people who have seen these creatures, but by um, artists who are employed, cartoonists uh, as much as illustrators. Um, they try to give them a kind of, you know, dinosaur-like look. Um, which they perhaps are a little, a little less, a little, a little less terrifying than people might imagine. But just encountering any of a very large creature in unexpected circumstances is going to be a very terrifying experience for people. Mm, absolutely, absolutely. Let me ask you this: what the the argument, I guess, that a lot of people have about these lake monsters is that the, and I'm sure that you know. In the in the pantheon of lake monsters that you've looked at, the size of lakes differ from very large to not quite large. Yes. But the idea is that and they is, they couldn't really sustain a population within an isolated lake. What's your what's your take on that well, that it, argument? This is the thing. It, it's how isolated some of the lakes are. Now, the, the the point is, for instance, Loch Ness isn't really an isolated. Just to take that as an example, isn't really an isolated lake. There's a river. The river Ness flows out into the North Sea, and when you get down to the, the southern part of the lake, it then the river, which is now sort of slightly canalized, but it flows on down into Loch Oik and to other lakes and right down through a chain of lakes that eventually get, gets down to, to, to the sea again on the other side. Um, and in the west of Ireland, for instance, some of the, the, the monsters that have been reported seem to be sort of living in sort of puddles in the middle of bogs. Um, and yet, they, they, those puddles are actually associated with lake systems that actually do um, eventually get out into the sea. Um, and so it may well be that what looks like an isolated lake isn't an isolated lake in quite the sense that people understand it to be. Right, right. Um, now, of course, you have to make some allowance for people seeing seeing things that aren't there, too, in the sense that people mistake um, quite natural phenomena like, like wave patterns or um, sort of... Um, uh, floating logs or other things. There must be some reports, certain number of reports are going to be down to, to people being mistaken in what they've actually seen. One has to admit that. Hmm. Um, and one also has to put in a small amount to say that there are always are going to be hoaxers somewhere or other. Um, and then there are the pe- then there are people who say things are hoaxes and I'm not sure they may turn out not to be hoaxes. I mean, there's a, a controversy going on about one of the most celebrated photographs of the the Loch Ness monster, the so-called surgeon's photograph. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, which 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 now is sort of said to be concocted by two two people. But one of the one of the problems about that is that the 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 original story was that it had been taken by a well-known um, 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 London surgeon. Right. While he was on holiday in the north of, of, of Scotland, and he'd hired a camera, borrowed a camera from a friend to, to take photographs of trains. And when he took the, the, the photographs, he took the photographs, which were then old-fashioned glass plate negatives, which you can't get now. He took them into a chemist's shop in, in Inverness and had the chemist develop them. 
and two of them were blank, and one of them showed the famous picture of the long neck got into the paper, and the other photograph, which never got into the paper, was held kept by the chemist, and uh, showed the, the the head of the animal sort of just disappearing down into the water, sinking down into the water, not a long neck, but but just going under the water, and that only came to light in the in in the fifties, and it doesn't seem to be built into this story. But the, the surgeon who actually, he's always called the surgeon um, who took this picture, um, he was actually a well-known um, scientist who gave evidence in forensic cases in, 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 in for the police. Um, and it's absolutely unimaginable that a man of that, that kind would be involved in, in a hoax. So actually, I'm not saying that what actually may be misleading is the claim that it's a hoax because, um, which everybody seems to accept now, and I, I'm not sure that I do, I accept myself at all. I much prefer to think that, um, the surgeon's photograph is actually, our photographs are actually genuine. But there you are, you see, there's, there's a, there's an endless debate, um, into the actual immediate circumstances, how it was ta- something was taken, how it was developed, how it was passed to the press, and the reputation of the person who took it, um, and his his professional standing and the damage that would have been done to the, him if he had been associated with the hoax mm. and so on. Uh, all of that has to be taken into consideration. So that, it's quite a complicated thing. I mean, it's like it's like if you were to if if there are thousands and thousands of of um, reports of late monsters, each one could become a forensic case in itself. You know, to, to, um, with witness statements and, and responses and, and anal- analysis and whatever. So uh, it's quite it's quite a, it's quite a complicated thing. There's going to be no in- instant answer to any of these things. Oh no, absolutely. It's uh, that's why it remains such a great mystery. And uh, it was funny you're talking about the surgeon's photo. The way you described it, sort of the uh, the different aspects of um, of how to uh, how to investigate it. it sounds just so eerily similar to the Patterson Gimlin film. You know, it's like how did this happen? Who who was behind it? How did it make it into the press? It's like it's something that's going to be endlessly debated and and sort of poured. The details are going to be poured over, uh, you know, forever because no one's ever really going to know for sure about either one of these. Uh, pieces well, that, of evidence. That, that, that's 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 very that, that's very similar. Except I think that the, the the Kenneth Wilson, the surgeon who took the photograph, was a a, a man of of high professional standing. Um, in 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 a way in a way to in a way that some of the people who've taken Bigfoot films perhaps haven't been. But no, I know, yeah. that's, a, that's, <laughs> that's that's a debate for another day. I'm not getting into that. Yeah, that's I'm probably an understatement for sure. Yeah, that's out of, <laughs> that's as they say that's out outside my comfort zone. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to say, you know, you've seen it from a different perspective because this thing exploded sort of uh, as In Search of Lake Monsters came out in the 70s, um, but nowadays. I don't know, Loch Ness, you know, I'm, I'm 35, I grew up like in the 80s, I remember those, uh, they, I don't know if they had these in Ireland, but they had like these Time Life book commercials, like Mysteries of the Universe, and it would sort of name all these different uh, things that were kind of like the, the, the tent poles yeah, yeah, of the paranormal. Yeah, I don't think you mean, yeah. And Loch Ness was always in there, and, and, but nowadays here in 2015, it's like the Loch Ness monsters really 
fallen way down the uh, you know the depth chart, I guess you could say, of, of paranormal mysteries. It's like not really as popular as it, as it was in the seventies. I guess what do you make of the of the downturn in popularity for for the Loch Ness mystery well, I, and in I turn lake monsters in general? You know, the thing has actually changed in a, in a sense that that one of the things and this is this is a sort of difficult area to just. To discuss this. You had, for instance, Ted Holliday, who'd done a lot of research on lake monsters, um, and, and then slowly moved from a, a theory that, that, um, they, they were some kind of, um, um, uh, animate object, uh, animal. Now, he didn't want them to be a, a mammal or what he wanted them to be some, some other kind of, um, prehistoric animal. Um, uh, the, the, the problem about it was he began then to actually, begin to see that there was some kind of relationship between UFOs and lake monsters. This kind of, it was a kind of run-in of one, one phenomenon to another. And one of his last, one of his last books was called The Dragon and the Disc. And so that, that actually each, it isn't, these things are not being kept in separate compartments. Um, they're, they're sort of, um, at, at, the, at their boundaries, they melt into each other in a way. Um, you know, maybe there, maybe, I, 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 one of the things that has somewhat disappointed me over the decades since the book was published is that one would have expected we might have had some kind of strong, um, zoological breakthrough that would have solved this mystery. And it's a bit like with, 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 with the Bigfoot as well mm. and the Yeti. We never seem to get that, 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 biological breakthrough and you begin to wonder whether there isn't something to be seen in a theory that begins to explore more these kind of other edges to 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 the matter that maybe there's a um i'm not i'm not fully worked up my ideas about this in, in into a book form but one feels that one would like to see at the end of my book there's a, there was a, a chapter devoted to, to to sort of the idea of folklore and legend and history Basically, we'll just call it, in quotes, ghostly phenomena. Now, maybe this is, maybe this is the, what, what Ted Holliday, I think you're referring to it as the Goblin Universe. So these, that's an element that, that perhaps has a, has a tremendous appeal to, to, to lots of people. Um, and, and takes one over into the edge of the, 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 the truly paranormal. That's one of the things that I think adds to the, the, the you know, add the, 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 the paranormal is spread out into into all kinds of areas, and the, the lake monsters have, as you say, sort of gone down the train a bit because actually the the, the potentially kind of human image, we'll say, of of the of the, the the yeti and the sasquatch makes them actually much more um, incredibly interesting to people in a way because hmm. they feel they're encountering some kind of quasi-human entity. Whereas they, they, in, in the in the Loch Ness monster, the, it's 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 a bit like um, it's a, it's a sort of more akin to to people encountering sort of dragons from the from the remote past. But God knows there's enough dragons at large in in, lo- in lots of modern films to keep people interested in dragons for a long time too. So <laughs> um, maybe these things will go in will go in in, in, in fashions as well, and um, there'll suddenly be a return of, a return of um, of, of, of an interest in dragons. Though, mind you, most of the films about Loch Ness and about lake monsters, I think, generally have been a great disappointment. But mm. however, that's a, that's the, yours isn't a, a show devoted to film criticism. <laughs>
No, yeah. I do think that we perhaps need to enlarge our ideas maybe a little bit. Uh, um, certainly Bernard Hubbins was very keen on there only being a kind of, um, on, on the being, uh, a, 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 only being a kind of a material animal solution. And I mentioned much earlier how he and, and Ivan Sanderson had become involved in the Minnesota Iceman. Well, I, I was in correspondence with, with Bernard was, had come over to, um, America to to publicise his his book on them, the great sea serpent, and he was staying with Ivan T. Sanderson when this all blew up, and I had sort of letters from a, a whole stream of correspondence from him at the time. And at, at a later stage, he was sort of when he was back in France, he was sort of saying that he found it actually um, a, a bit a bit a bit difficult because um, he 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 uh, he found Ivan sort of was much more prepared to explore sort of um, much more esoteric ideas, we'll say, and when they were discussing the, um, the, the, the where the, the, the origin of the Minnesota Iceman might have come from, um, Bernard told me that one of the things that Ivan said to him quite seriously, he said, he said this quite seriously, we have to consider too that it might be an alien entity. Hmm. But that, that was back, that was back in the sort of 1968, um, and I think we've had a full flood of alien entities of one kind or another. Um, but you can see that, that how this, how these two streams of thought, um, they don't always coalesce very easily with each other. And Bernard was sort of became very uneasy about about all of that. And when he actually wrote up the the, the book, he wrote it up with Boris Porshnev, who was a, a Russian um, who wanted to see these creatures as a survival of Neanderthal man, hmm. um, rather than rather than a, a, a sort of we'll just say an ent- an alien an alien entity. Um, but then he, at a later stage, when, when Ivan Standerson died, he died of a brain tumor. Bernard thought that, oh, maybe this was sort of, this, this, these, these, these strange ideas that I, Ivan was having were, were due to, um, uh, uh, promptings of, of the, the, the incipient tumor. Mm. It's all very, um, not, not really, I, you can see the way that, that, um, Ivan Sanderson's ideas developed, but they, the, um, they, they they were quite widespread in a, in in a way about various other subjects, um, and I don't think that was really really the solution. It's just Ivan was exploring somewhere that Bernard didn't want to go. Right, right. That's what I was going to ask you. Was it like because you mentioned sort of at the end of your book, you you sort of entertain the idea of maybe of some kind of folkloric ghostly phenomenon. Was it, was the idea of these things being paranormal rather than flesh and blood? Was that like so? Far, I mean, even even today, sort of the consideration of uh, of cryptids being paranormal is is pushed to the edge. Was it like even further beyond the realm of thought? Like it makes well, it sounds it, like that, that from it, how Bernard reacted. It certainly, I think it, at the back then it certainly was. I, I gained the impression from what I, I, I see in the literature now that it would certainly probably be more, more entertained by by certain numbers, certain numbers of writers. But there is the problem with this. In a sense, is that as I was explaining, that, that this, if if one goes down that road, you're basically going to alienate sort of large elements of the scientific community who might be otherwise very helpful in, in assisting one to find unknown animals. So that there's, there's there's a penalty be, to be pay, paid for pursuing. Um, Sort of that that kind of theorizing to, too far, in the sense that important um, 
an important critical dimension would be lost to, to, to researchers by them simply not having the, the, um, the, the, the feedback from the, 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 the biological, zoological community. Do, do that sort of, that makes sense, I think, in a, in a way that you, you, you have to keep, one has to keep sort of, um, sort of one foot on the, on the ground, so to speak, or at least, even if it's a big foot, um, or, or one <laughs> paddle in the water, you can't actually just completely accept one theory. And we don't actually, in a way, understand things very well. I mean, it's, it's, you know, only, only la, 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 a couple of weeks ago, there was a week when it was reported that a a a a, a thirty foot mora eel had been sort of captured off the coast of Devon, and in the same week there was a a giant a, a giant crab like creature had been found, and then um, a, another report of a of of, of a giant squid. Um, the giant mora off the coast of Devon reminded me immediately of some creature that was reported off the coast of Wicklow here in Ireland in, in Charles Gould's book um, about about monsters published in, in the 1860s. So, you know, you've got to, it was, it was you know, the, the, one has to know what the background material is um, to be able to place what, what happens. That's just enough to, to say, oh, we've seen a creature now and we have a photograph of it and we've pulled it out of the water. But it has a whole history behind it and you have to try and go back then and try and find um, how long these creatures were known in, in, in time uh, before, in, in, in earlier centuries. Mm. Uh, some of the people who wrote about um, mysterious animals in, a, in, a, in an African dimension um, like the, the, the British um, uh, colonial uh, administrator Ch- uh, Pittman, um, he sort of was, uh, discusses in one of his books, he has two chapters devoted to the mysterious animals of Africa, and he tries to work out this, this confusion between the, the real animals, surviving animals from prehistoric past that have survived, and this whole question of then the dimensions of sort of African folklore that have then imposed themselves somewhere into the same mix, and it it can be very hard to 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 to, to kind of weave your way uh, uh, weave away among all of these different elements. But this is actually one of the reasons why why um, research, in a way, in this field is so essential. We need more people in it, perhaps. Hmm. And, and maybe um, I was saying earlier that there's so many lakes in North America. That um, you know, it's 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 uh, people should be actually researching their local lakes uh, and trying to find um, that the, not only the reports from say the early 20th century, but also the 19th century, and then what's the folklore of the what I continue to call Indians, but I suppose I should call the the First Nations if I'm to mm, have the yeah, right vocabulary the... for modern modern American radio. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, Native Americans is fine. I was gonna, as, as I was just gonna jump in here to sort of set you up with that question because that's what I was gonna ask you. Uh, you know, you mentioned earlier as the as the colonialists, for lack of a better term, spread across America. So did the yeah. lake monster uh, reports and sightings and stories. But what do we know about Native American uh, 
tales of, of, of lake monsters that predate well, these, this is, these uh, this, this is the thing. For instance, I came to notice uh, roughly at the time of, of, of the, in the wake of the first reports from Loch Ness was Lake Okanagan in British Columbia, which is a very long lake, and, and it's in a valley that, that, that where they do a lot of um, they they do a lot of fruit fruit growing and whatever. It's a very sort of in a way, but it's up in the mountains, but but in a, in a climate, but the, the, an attractive climate. But when the, the first colonists who arrived there in the 1860s, they certainly found that the local Indian communities knew all about these these creatures, um, which they called Natika, and and also along the sea coast of Vancouver northwards and um, the tribes that were on the seashore they knew all about sea serpents and these lake monsters there is an immense amount of folklore which is it seems to me is is a bit underestimated in a way um, and i think that if you if you if you go back for instance to um to lake champlain at nearer the east coast that certainly had an Indian tradition. But mind you, in that case, it's got confused because the, the earliest report that's often quoted for for Lake Champlain, that it was Champlain himself, is, is a mistake. But there were, in fact, Indian traditions among the seven nations about these creatures. And they'd even come into Hiawatha to some extent. So the, the, this is an important, an important dimension. Um, but it needs to be, I think, almost um, approached from the inside because uh, as with Mr. Pittman in, in Africa, the outsider doesn't see the inside of a culture in quite the same way that the, the insider does. Um, it's possibly a thing for, for, the, um, for the, the members of the, the, the Indian tribes themselves to research and to bring forward their own kind of their own kind of vision of the, the mythological past of North America. But the same applies in Africa to some extent, because Africa is going through this great process of, of both destruction and modernization, which is seemingly on one hand destroying traditions, and yet extraordinarily um, um, reinforcing traditions, because um, so the rise of, of what's sort of rather foolishly called witchcraft in modern Africa, which is really a reinsertion of, of ancient traditions. Right. That's, that's a, that's, the insideness of all of that is very difficult for people from Europe, um, to actually ever appreciate or to, to, to understand. Mm, I see what you're saying. But the yeah. same sort of confusions you have, for instance, over, over, over what people in Haiti believe and, 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 and what voodoo is all about and what, you know, so, um, the things from the outside get sensationalized, whereas from the inside, they may have a coherence and a relevance and a tradition and, and some kind of explanation would, would be would be available which would actually fully more more illuminate what what was actually going on hmm. now is there obviously the book came out over 40 years ago is there anything in the book now looking back that you're like oh i shouldn't have put this in there or this doesn't fit or i have a second thoughts about this case no, I, or I, I tell anything you, like that looking over it which i i i i, I was 
doing again for, for preparation for this talk. Um, the, the, I, I said, God, I should have, I should have written more about that. <laughs> the problem about it is the, the years since I, I no, have, because I, I, I write a lot of other kinds of books. I, I write literary history as well and yeah. literary biography. So I mean, my, my, my research techniques have improved, you know. Oh, I would now sort of, I would now sort of say, God, how did I neglect not to do that? And in fact, it, it's one of the daunting things, but if I were to set out in the book, and the book would now grow, grow to about um, four times the size that it is. I mean, it's already sort of nearly 400 pages long. What is it, 348 pages? Um, you know, it would have just got bigger and bigger. Um, and I, I don't think there's anything I would have left out, to tell you the truth. Huh. I just okay. think there's more I should have put in. That's a, that's um, great. That's great. That's a good I attitude. Mean, one of the things when 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 this new edition came out from uh, Anomalous Press, we discussed this as to whether it should in fact be be updated. And the the the, the, the position of, of the publisher and and of Lauren Coleman, who provides the, the the introduction, was no, no, reprint it as it as it is because as a classic statement of how it was seen at that time. And I think that was a sound idea. Um, because otherwise you'd have to condense earlier material and reduce it, whereas now all you need to do is add on to it. That's the point. You don't want to lose detail from the from from the past. Exactly. One of the things yeah. is, I mean, I, I want <clears throat> arising from from the the the, the uh, writing the new material for it. Um, I, I mentioned in the course of it that that there were still th- in, in the in the course of the original edition there were things that I hadn't solved. Um, and there was a, 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 a Victorian reference to, to an article um, if it, by, a law, by a British statesman called Lord Malmesbury who said that uh, another British aristocrat called Lord Ellesmere had written a very interesting article about the monsters in Loch Assent. Well, the thing about that was I could never then track this down at that date at all. It just simply completely defeated me. Um, but lo and behold, it, 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 after a, a bit of a bit of um, further digging on the on the the, the the internet, up popped what I had been looking for those years before, <laughs> and a very a very remarkable report indeed, going back to the 1850s, which quotes and um, the sighting of an animal that came ashore on an island in Loch Assent, and it names the two gamekeepers that saw it and whatever. You know, so um, it, it it just you know quite stunning. If at the time it had been followed up, it would have been it would have been interesting. But um, it 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 so there still you know the the the, 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 the I, as I say, all I would want to put in would put in all this material I wasn't able to find back in, in the 1960s and 70s. Why did you, does it strike you that there's something in it that I should be ashamed of having written? No, 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 no. <laughs> Don't do that um, to me now. <laughs> oh, no, well, the problem, no, the problem about it, the problem about it, the problem about it is that, 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 you know, you just simply learn more. Um, and, and it's, it's, it's one of the things I notice in, in writing, in writing biographies. Hmm. Um, you know, I, with, with a colleague, I wrote a, a very large 500 page book. A biography, not of James Joyce now, but of James Joyce's father. So from the, but the, the thing is, but I realize now writing long biographies isn't really the solution to understanding people because really the solution to, to sort of biographical mysteries is to concentrate on a smaller period of time or a particular episode that you can write about in great detail. 
hmm. trouble about large-scale overviews or long biographies or, or, or full-scale biographies is that you still have to compress detail and leave things out. And even when the writer is finished, his editor will say, oh, I think we can do with that less about the first wife and, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, and so things that have been researched get lost, whereas they wouldn't get lost. Everyone could break the thing down into, say, oh, we'll just write about um, those two important years in his life and write about it in great detail. And actually, I think that's the way um, biography ought to go and, uh, and, and history, too. Hmm. And I think also that that's the way that, that cryptozoological studies ought to go. Not it, should, it needs to concentrate on individual areas or individual episodes or whatever and, and go into them in, 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 in a, as great a detail as possible. I see what you're saying. It's almost like take a chapter from each of these, uh, you know, take a chapter from your book here, and then each chapter, I guess, could be its own book. Is kind of like what you're saying. Well, here. that's that's basically what that's basically what 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 it could be turned into. And in fact, to some extent, I mean, for instance, that the one about I was writing about Australia and New Zealand. Well, of course, now there are people who write about cryptozoology in those countries in great in great detail, and they 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 sort of. Um, uh, they're off in pursuit of the Yowie and this and the Bunyip and whatever right. in high style. Um, so, you know, they, 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 this, this has actually a book like this, because it's a general survey, opens up the possibility of research to people in a way that, that, that um, wasn't possible. They wouldn't have thought of doing it in the past, but they didn't know the subject existed in a way. Now the reason yeah, you did you kind of put me on the spot there. The reason I did ask about that is because I had somebody on the show a while back and asked them about the bunyip because I found it really intriguing, and they kind of dismissed it that it wasn't really they didn't really either they didn't have enough information about it or they kind of like um, dismissed it. But but I found it really intriguing because it's such a unique uh, unique sounding creature. So talk talk a little bit about the bunyip because I always well, found that. The point. The, point, the thing about the thing about the bunyip is, you see, this is you have to remember biologically, Australia is is not only on the the wrong side of the world, so to speak, from from where where we live, but it's also all the animals are different. It's 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 it's, it's the continent of marsupials. It's as if evolution took its own its its own way. Um, in Australia, and the same is really true of, of the Bunyip and, and the mysterious monsters. Now, some of them are, 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 are the, 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 which led to the Bunyip was originally a, a, an Aborigine uh, 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 term for, for 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 a mysterious creature, and it was then taken up by the the, the early, early white settlers um, to apply to to um, to sort of any slightly sort of abnormal thing that they they saw. So, in a sense. The, the the platypus um, with its uh, sort of this, uh, uh, which is such an extraordinary biological creature uh, a mono a monotreme that lays eggs and whatever the problem about it is that that could be in a way described as a bunyip because it's so unusual but then the thing was that that there were there were continual stream, streams of reports of bunyips from largely from the the countryside of the the south um, uh, the south west of the southeast of the country rather um where the, it's more more temperate in a way than the the inside um the desert conditions are 
And it's a bit again like the, the, the situation in North America. You get reports in local papers and then they're denied and then a skull is found and it's said to be a, 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 you know, a, a diseased calf skull and whatever. It all becomes quite, 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 quite a complicated situ- situation. But I, I think that because Australia was such a, a, an extraordinary country, biologically anyway, it's the country that you would expect to make new discoveries in. And of course, they did every when when the first when the first zoologists went to Australia, everywhere they looked, that there were there were new um, there were new discoveries to be to be made. Mm. I mean, the kangaroo. What could be more extraordinary than the kangaroo? Um, and but if the if the kangaroos were sort of rarer and more on, 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 than and less easily seen than that that they are. Um, they would have been seen as a bunyip and would have been probably denied by 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 later people as not having enough information about them. Mm. Um, no, it, 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 but the same is true. The same is true of, of of New Zealand as well, and maybe into the, into the South Seas generally, where there seem to be certainly oh, not not so much lake monsters, but certainly strange marine. Marine creatures, and uh, there's a, a celebrated passage in, in Thor Heyerdahl's um, first book about the, the voyage of the Contiki, where they were simply crossing on their raft from Peru to, to the islands of Polynesia, and they saw sharks and all these kind of things. But one of their experiences was this great dark mass that arose up underneath the boat, uh, that the raft rather, and then sort of. Um, covered a vast area around them and then just sank away. Now what it could have been, was it was it a, a some kind of large jellyfish, was it a, a coagulated mass or something, what it was. I mean the we the sea is full of strange things and I think this is where 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 we have to we have to um um sort of be prepared for, for, for um that to to realise that we simply don't know everything. Absolutely. I mean, it's one of the extraordinary things, um, looking back, uh, scientists sort of say, all the foolish things people believed in the Middle Ages or the 18th century or how advanced science is now. But sometimes you have to remember that the things we know about the past, about from the, the bestries of the Middle Ages or what scientists thought in the, uh, the, the, what people thought in the 18th century, these weren't actually thought of by foolish or stupid people. These were the ideas of the, the leading minds of the day. And now, you know, they, they, like phlogiston, they may be now sort of derided by, by, um, by, by modern scientists, but I often comfort myself with the thought that God knows three centuries from now, somebody will be sort of talking on, a, on a, whatever form of mass media they have for their, their three <laughs> centuries from now, saying, God, how ignorant those people were back in 2015 that they didn't know this and didn't know that. How advanced we are in our century. You know, I think we've, I think we've got to be a little more understanding about the past. Um, T.H. White once said, sort of talking about looking back in the past, um, when he was thinking about the Middle Ages that he wrote about in the the, 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 the once in future king, he was sort of saying, well, they're the foolish, the Middle Ages were very foolish, of course, because they devoted their time to building um, Gothic cathedrals rather than atom bombs. <laughs> you know, so it all it all depends on what you want to do and what you know that the it it never does to derive the knowledge of the past because someday our own knowledge will be the knowledge of the past. That's very profound. That's just, that's absolutely true. I would be yeah. discovered to be totally inadequate. <laughs> um, 
Well, it's funny in a way because we're looking at sort of knowledge of the past because we're looking at, at your book, uh, 40 Years Gone By. It's it's remarkable. Uh, it's still – I, I kind of can see your frustration in a way that we really haven't had that breakthrough that you would expect given how many various Lake Monster stories there are. I mean, what do you – what do, well, you, it's, it's what do you attribute to me? I mean, I was thinking, thinking about this. I mean, for instance, there was a famous sort of effort made to go into to sort of Central Africa or West Africa, rather, to search, track down the, the by Roy Mackel to search down the, the, the sort of, the, the Makele Membe and cause it, and, and, you know, one of the celebrated, um, creatures uh, that there supposedly lurks in the swamps of those nations. But the problem about it is that really came to nothing. But it just, you know, why go all the way from Chicago to, to Central Africa or to, to West Africa when you could just as easily sort of um, conduct your research in the Great Lakes? And I, I think that, that there's, um, it, 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 I think opportunities to investigate have been neglected. And I think it may be sometimes, I mean, people say, oh, we can't interest academics in it. Uh, I, as uh, academic life, and uh, people think, well, academics will have the answer to everything, sort of thing. But and, and people have strange ideas about what what it is to be a scientist. Uh, and people, for instance, about psychic events, they say, oh, well, there isn't a scientist, you know, scientists say, sort of thing. But you have to remember that very very few numbers of people who are engaged in scientific work are actually doing very original work. Mm. Yeah. If you see if you see a paper in, in Nature, for instance, there'll be often forty names at the end of a re- of, of a research article. There's every everybody who's contributed it gets gets their name attached to it. But the actual possibly is that that the numbers of the really the really breakthrough people are only two or three people. But the the way science is funded now means that a lot of people are in involved in academic work need to um, be sure they're going to get their grants, their grant for the year or for the research program or right. whatever. And you cannot you cannot afford as a scientist to, to put yourself in a position where you look suspect to the people who are going to be funding research. And mm. I think that's one of the reasons why so many scientists and biologists are often um, disinclined to respond to, 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 to these situations because they, they, their research lives are limited and short and they want to get, they want to get work done and to get that work done they need to get money and they don't want to lose the opportunity to do core research by getting themselves involved in something that may make them a laughing stock. Right, exactly. Yeah, and it's so a difficult. A positive research, a positive resistance in a way. To involve, I mean, I think you could probably see that, although I, I don't know it quite so well, but the same kind of thing in research into UFOs and what. Oh, absolutely. Ladies and gentlemen, our special guest speaker will provoke you. He will inspire you. He is Creed Bratton. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. Two eyes, two ears. A chin, a mouth, ten fingers, two nipples, a butt, two kneecaps, a penis. I have just described to you the Loch Ness Monster. And the reward for its capture? 
all the riches in Scotland. So I have one question. Why are you here? Well, I guess the question is, is with this too, it's like, in, I'm really fascinated sort of by your perspective because you, because the book is 40 years old. I mean, you've looked at this now for 50 years. I'm sure you'll have to, you know, we, we can talk a little bit about sort of like how you got out of the whole field, um, you know, but I'm sure you didn't just stop having well, I didn't interest. really get out of the field. <laughs> well, I know, but you know what I mean. The field just grew bigger and I grew smaller within it. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great, I like that. I'm gonna, <laughs> I'll start using that myself. Um, but I mean, do, what do you think of the idea just that the, that lake monsters that, that, you know, we didn't see, that academia didn't pick it up, that it's still sort of in the fringes of, of the mainstream, if you will. You know what I mean? It's like, it's kind of disappointing yeah, yeah. that, that we haven't seen any real, um, biologists sort of try and tackle this. They just refuse to even, they just dismiss it all well, out there, of hand. There are also, I think there are also, I think there are also things that have to be borne in mind about how, how, how we've been sort of, how, how things have changed about conditions for observation. Um, and one of the things that's very striking, for instance, about, well, not about, but, but, but my book, true, but also about Bernard's large book about the, the sea serpent, is that, um, you know, the, he's divided up into historical periods, and I, I, I do in my book as well. So much of the material comes from the, 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 the 17th, 18th, 19th, and early 20th century. Now, in the case of, um, we say the great sea serpent. The problem about this, this is the, these, these, this relates to the, the, the expansion of sailing ships from, from Europe and America all around the world, but they were sailing ships. And the problem about it is that, that they, 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 they say, oh, sailors at sea they used to see creatures. Well, they saw creatures at sea because the ships, the sands, were essentially silent. They moved through the water with the power of wind. They didn't have engines. Sea serpent reports tend to sort of, in a way, um, go, go down when you have the increased, um, when the ship becomes steam-driven and then now with newer engines. Um, and nobody goes on the water. You can see this. You can see this wherever there are boats in in in, in North America. People people are roaring round with their Evan roots or <laughs> roaring behind them, um, and they create simply too much noise, both ships and 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 recreational boat users, for any animal to want to go anywhere near them. Yeah. So the the number of the number of things are likely to. If you want to see something, you've got to you've got to sit quietly and and wait for it to to, to arrive. You can't sort of go pottering around in, in high powered boats and expect to to see um, shy creatures who who flee the sight of your noise. And the other thing is that the nature of the press, I think, changed over this period because. Um, the 17th, 18th, and 19th century saw the emergence of uh, the original newspapers turning slowly into to larger newspapers and then into giant newspapers. And the 1930s, when when uh, the the Loch Ness monster came along, was 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 really the, the the great heyday of newspapers. It was certainly that that first part of the, the first part of the, the the 20th century in both America and Europe. Um, was the heyday of newspapers. Newspapers began to decline in their popularity and reach with the introduction of radio, which is generally 1922, and then with television, which we'll say is about 1945, 1950. Yeah. 
and the 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 the, the there's, a, there's in a sense um, the the sea serpent and lake monster reports decline away due to the change in the environment to the change in the media that are going to be reporting them because the press has now grown smaller and just report things like this and um, the the radio and television news take a, a very different approach to to to, to stories. A story on, in a newspaper may be sort of 500 to 1,000 words long. Mm. What's, what's the, the length of a story that appears on radio or television? It's, it's you know, um, uh, sometimes 20 words to, to, to 100 words. So there isn't simply the, the, the volume of reporting, ironically, that there once would have been back in the in the early 20th century or the 19th century. Yeah, and you also have the the issue sort of of that, like, uh, local news seems to be kind of on the wane. So I don't know how it is over where you are, but here here in the United States, it's like... Well, that's very true, too, because one of the phenomena of 19th century America is the extraordinary numbers of, of, of local papers uh, every time you set up a town, somebody was there with a printing press to, to print <laughs> to print a four-page paper. Right. And some of these papers grew into grew into um, grew into to sort of larger papers. And in fact, you know, the the the, the, the anomaly that always the odd titles of American papers in the view of of, of Europeans, you know, the sort of you know the the sort of um, Topeka Herald Times. Clarion, well, I'm inventing this, of course. Um, these are the results of papers coming together into one one paper. But certainly, local papers were 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 a phenomenon in America. And when I was still in America in the 1970s in Ann Arbor, where the University of Michigan was, there was an excellent newspaper, the Ann Arbor News, a magnificent paper. That because it was in a university community, it carried serious news and and serious journalism about the arts and sciences and politics and foreign affairs and whatever. The paper has now disappeared. It's gone. Yeah. The Ann Arbor News. And some of them then have changed into shopping newspapers, have turned into advertising sheets, and you know they they they've, they've the, the whole nature of journalism I think has changed, and with it has. The, the nature of what gets reported gets has mm. changed. Yeah. And it's difficult, too. You know, like you said, television picked up so big, and this is a it's, – it's obviously, it's a visual medium. And so someone sees a lake – you know, they, they need sort of like the visual aspect of it, and that can be difficult with a, with a phenomenon like lake monsters. That's very true. But it, 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 that was one of the things, for instance, I mentioned from uh, – when we were first starting out, I mentioned one of the things, the very key thing that inspired my interest was seeing the transmission of Tim Dinsdale's film yeah. um, um, in the 19, early 1960s and 1960 of, of what he had taken. Now, the interesting thing about that was that that, that, that film, which wasn't terribly long, but it got onto the BBC in what was a... A flagship news program, a mag- mag- news magazine program called Panorama, and he was given something like 15 or 20 minutes to show the film and discuss it and, what, and whatever. Now that just simply doesn't happen. Now I, I you know, I don't know. I, 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 you know, you, you, television, television news programs do not respond in that kind of way. And uh, an item about a lake monster would 
would be at the end of the ray, the 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 the, the, the evening, and yeah. it would be the the lightweight um, little um, item that would close the show. It wouldn't actually be, and I doubt if I doubt if anything about Loch Ness would now get on the modern version of Panorama on the BBC. But if you look at NBC, CBC, or ABC. Um, you you CBS I know ABC you'll see exactly the same kind of thing. The news programs have have become retrenched, and you know documentaries have taken a different a different direction. Mm. And I think documentaries, with the growth of uh, cable television and, and multi channels, in order to compete, they have to make themselves a bit more sensational. Oh, absolutely. So, you know, yeah. Yeah, yeah and, and you can see that in all kinds of reporting relating to cryptozoology of any kind, that, um, you know, the whole experience has to be heightened, and largely heightened for a stay-at-home audience who are probably sitting sitting on their couch, sort of eating their popcorn, uh, with no intention of going anywhere near a forest, but just want to, <laughs> to see whether the, whether those young men are actually going to encounter this 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 Sasquatch or, 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 or um, maybe get get attacked by it. You know, that, that, everything is very slightly hyped up, and you can see the same thing in a lot of the paranormal programs where you know it, the, the, the level of hysteria is is is, is hyped up mm. in a way that's more akin to a horror film than it is to any traditional report of a true ghost story. Right, right. They don't really resemble like an actual scientific expedition anymore. Maybe when they first started out they did, but now it's just ridiculous sort of uh, showmanship, so it's pretty it's pretty crazy. Now if you having looked at this mystery for so long, if you were if 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 I guess like, you know, if money were no object, I like to present this sort of to the Bigfoot researchers. This is a good one for you too. It's like if money was no object and time was no concern and you know i called you up and said peter i just hit the lottery you know what what's the best way to go about sort of uh tackling this mystery to get to the bottom of it as far as lake monsters go like maybe do you have one place in mind that you think would be the very best place to go to put the best team in place and what would be the what would be the means and the method you would use to sort of uh well i get i must say i'm not sure i'm not what? sure that i would go to loch ness i think one would i i i think in on the whole i i, I mentioned the great lakes and the, the rocky mountain mm-hmm. lakes but the actual place that might be the most interesting would be to to go back to the one that i mentioned earlier lake okanagan in british columbia um, which is a very long lake lake um it is quite a, it's, it's quite an interesting place. It has, it, it has, it has vantage pointers and sandy beaches. It's not, it's not, it's deep, but it's not quite as sheer as Loch Ness. It has towns around the edges of it, so there's more people, more witnesses. Um, and I think a better chance of actually, um, tabulating reports, getting eyewitnesses around the lake. You see, Lake, Loch Ness is actually, Got there's a big town to the top of Lake Loch Ness, Inverness, but it's not on the lake. You just have a couple of little villages as you go down, and it's a very, in a way, it's actually got very few people overlooking it. And this was one of the things when the first reports came in that there was a new a new road or an old road had been really revamped up, and cars were able to drive freely up and down with a very good view of the lake, because everything had been cleared away to make the new road. Mm. Now the thing about it is that that things have changed now, things have grown up, and it's more difficult to see the the, 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 the lake. But the problem about it was 
that 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 there was a new a new uh, community of people moving up and down the lake. Now the thing is with Lake Okanagan is you've you've already got the communities established. Um, and you just need to coordinate it. And I think I'd go back there. Um, it's also perhaps a, a quieter sort of British Columbia is, is a sort of um, quieter atmosphere for conducting um, cryptozoological research than perhaps Washington State, if you <laughs> if you could follow that 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 um, that that, that the, the, the Canadian temperament is less. Um, is less sort of um, given to theatricalities than the, 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 the American temperament. Yeah, um, absolutely. And I think it might be the ideal place to do it. Um, and also, the climate is very pleasant. Um, Loch Ness can be a very unpleasant place in wintertime. Um, it may be quite attractive in, in looking in summertime. <laughs> and that's an important thing. If you're going to conduct research, you want to conduct it all the year round. That's the question I was so, going to ask you. That's sort of couched within the question, I guess. Is like, what, what do you think is the best way to get to the bottom of this? Because I know they tried sonar or something like that in Loch Ness, and it didn't pan out as well as uh, as had been hoped. So, I mean, what is there? Is there any sort of well, like technology I, I that can be used? I, I think there's. I think there's a lesson to be learned from from um, zoology here in the widest sense. I mean, when when I was at college and. and uh, taking courses at, at, in, in anthropology, we used to do a certain amount about primate research and whatever. And the, the standard book about the great apes in, the, in those days was research done by a man called Yerkes. Now, he had been studying monkeys, but he had been studying monkeys in a confined situation on an island in a, in a research center, right? Um, it's rather like sort of studying, going to Sing Sing or to, to um, a, a, a big jail somewhere in the United States and studying the inmates and saying that and seeing them as representative of the larger American society. You're not just studying a community under stress and pressure and whatever. It's not a genuine one. And a lot of research into animals in the 19th century was done on the basis of um, that kind of thing, what you can see in a zoo, or what you can learn from killing the animal. It was actually only with people like 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 um, in Africa, like Schaller, who set out to, to sort of study lions, and Diane Fossey with the gorillas, and whatever, that you, that you, you just sit there. And you see what's to be seen. You right. don't. You don't actually interfere. You just actually observe the animals. And of course, when they started observing primates in the wild, um, they, they turned out to be quite different from from what, what was observed by Yerkes with his with his imprisoned monkeys. And you actually have to, you know, every time there's a, there's a phrase in 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 in. in um, forensic science, every contact leaves a trace. Mm. So what you actually want to do is kind of develop some kind of research that is contactless, if you understand what I mean, that you want to be able to just observe and see what's there without actually um, imposing anything into it by way of sonar or nets or anything. You just try and see what is there to be observed um, in the same way that, you know, Shala would have observed the snow leopard, yeah. we would say. And in that sense, you then begin to learn what is actually really there, but that you're not interfering with or you, that you're not creating by your interference. Yeah. 
I don't I, I don't know if that makes sense if you follow all of that. I think it makes sense. That, yeah, you're saying you, yeah. you need more of like a detached observer perspective on this if yeah. you're going to really yeah. try and study it rather than yeah. sort of go out and try and get it. So you're not sort I, of of the I opinion. I think a lot of expeditions are gung-ho with their submarines and their their sonar and, and whatever. Actually, the sonar is basically projecting sound into the water. Hmm. And, and you know, you're, you're not going to actually going to be able to see any any um, anything that that way because anything will, will sort of flee away from, from us. But I think that would be the, the 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 right way to go about it. But I, I I you know every day I go down the street and I see everybody sort of looking at their tablets or their iPhones or whatever. <laughs> and I just wonder I just wonder whether we're moving into a culture where nothing ever gets observed in a, in a sense unless it's actually. <laughs> Unless, unless it's actually digitalized, perhaps. Um, you know, I'm not sure that people are 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 are, are capable of of observing anymore. Um, yeah, yeah, uh, it's, it's scary in a way. You know, you go to a you go to a, like a rock concert, and half the people are are filming it on their watching it on their phone while they're there. It's like put the phone down, just yeah, enjoy the experience. Or, or are they taking selfies of themselves? Yes, yeah. yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. But I mean, one of the things, for instance, and, and to go back to Ivan Sanderson for a minute, in Ivan Sanderson's book about the Sasquatch or Bigfoot, uh, and he was talking about sort of areas of Northern California, Washington, Oregon, that, that sort of area. And he was saying that when you actually looked on the map, it, it all looks mapped, he'd say. But then when when you actually examine the thing, you see, of course, that that. Um, the actual incidence of roads is very is very little, and the 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 the, the there are whole areas that actually perhaps people don't actually go into all that that often. And that now nowadays, of course, one of the things is with everybody being motorized, uh, and it'd be very difficult to sort of detach an American from his motor car. People just actually drive through places. The number uh, so that that it may well be that even a place like North America is is in a sense um, quite not not so much unexplored in a way, but actually unobserved in a way, because people simply aren't conscious of of they just sort of pass through it rather than observe it. Yeah, Durrell in one of his African books back in the fifties, he sort of was he he was in British British West Africa as it was then, and um, he had he just, he had a, a British official sort of come and look at the animals that they were going to take take back to to to, to Britain. You see, mm-hmm. and I thought there were boxes of this and boxes of that, and the, the official was looking at it, walked up and down and looking at them. And he, he he said, "Goodness me!" He said, "I've I've never seen any of these. Are these very rare creatures?" And Gerald Dell says, "No, no, they're all quite common. They're all they're all out there." But the the, the 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 British administrator had not seen them. But even more surprising, it was that some of the the local people, who had probably gone from their village into into living town life, were actually unacquainted with with the with these with these creatures as well. Yeah. So the, there is there is a loss that in the old in the old pre-colonial days when people lived out in the bush in Africa or the Indians lived in the forest in a kind of reciprocal way they knew the the environment and they knew the the um they they interacted with it in a way that's quite different than people do now um and th- therefore they probably actually saw more and understood more about their environment 
um, in, in a kind of personal sense than people do now when they actually deprive to derive a lot of what they think about the, the environment from what they're told by scientists or school teachers. Mm, absolutely, yeah. Well, people just aren't even that tuned into the environment anymore. So it's, you know, like you said about people looking at their tablets all the time. It's We're, we're getting further and yeah, further well, detached from nature, uh, frighteningly enough. Yes, yes. Um, it, 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 well, it, it, and also sometimes I, things are very strange. I mean, a little while ago, um, my, my wife and I were with a party and we were visiting um, Girani Moni's garden in, in, uh, near Paris. Um, and when we came away, my, my, my wife was remarking, it's a remarkable garden or whatever. She said, do you the amount of bird song was in it? And the thing was, I, I said, well, yes, but actually we'd been there in the middle of the afternoon. And, of course, you don't actually necessarily hear birds. You hear birds in the first thing in the morning or at night or whatever, or establishing their territoriality or giving warning in some way to their... But um, they, 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 we decided that the bird song was actually recorded and was being played out to set the atmosphere of the gardens. What? This kind of background background you like to get in a shop and <laughs> this is the this is the problem about observing anything now that even in a garden that you think is wonderfully wild that the problem about it is it's it's all been uh, it's it's sort of all all, all it, it, it's not quite what you think it is it's all you know that's so, crazy um, yeah so uh um and i think that's maybe the the point about you know the the the, the but the thing is also I, I think one of the things is that it's very hard to, you know, the whole, just to bro- broaden the thing about the paranormal in general, the, the problem about the paranormal, you, you've constantly got skeptics saying, oh, they want to have all of this under scientific conditions, right? Yeah. In a lab, we'll say, and somebody wired up for sound and whatever. <laughs> it's a bit like Yerkes monkeys on the island all over again, right? Um the, the problem about it is if people are going to see a ghost, we'll just say, to, to take a different direction, mm-hmm. um, it's going to be an unexpected encounter with something that is unusual by its definition. Right. And therefore, it can't actually be, um, you can't actually recreate it to demand in a lab. But so the, exactly the same kind of thing that Schaller and, 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 um, and Diane Fossey were doing, um, Mm. And Baroness von Lawick, you have to actually sort of um, wait to see what they wait to see what the animals are doing. They weren't recreating animal life or whatever in a lab. They'd abandoned the lab. They'd abandoned the dissecting dish. They were trying to see what the life and the experiences of the animals really was when they were just left alone and, and, and observed. I'm, I'm repeating myself in this, but it does mm. apply to the paranormal as well, that you can't expect it to, 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 to meet the demands of some scientists because it's just actually impossible. Now, I want to circle back they, they, to... By nope. definition, if they're paranormal, they're not normal. So Yeah, exactly, exactly. So why use normal means to uh, study them? You, I want to circle back to sort of your idea of what these lake monsters are, so I can kind of dig more into it. You, you sort of put oh, right, forward yes. the idea of the warm-blooded mammal. Uh, so you're thinking that well, these you, evolved from ancient sort no, of I creatures. Think one or of the what? things about this, I, I, I was mentioning about ecological niches, but you have to remember too that people's ideas of um, 
pas, 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 under the head of the Tsar is, is rather shaped by their, by their, by their latest thinking. I mean, when, when the, 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 at one time, the great dinosaurs were unknown. They were only discovered in the, by starting with Gideon Mantell and, and Mariani and, and, and then the explorers in the, in the west of America um, in the course of the nine, early 19th century. And of course, then when they, they became the immediate answer, for instance, to observations of, of the sea serpent, and people sort of said, well, of course, then, if any, then if a report didn't assign, seem to fit the model of being a, a plesiosaur, it was discounted. Well, of course, the way to, to go about it is actually to try and see what it is that people are observing and then explain it. I'm not sure that you, you can have a theory about what these animals are. That's to say, I mean, they could be, as people thought in Victorian times, a prehistoric survival. They could be, as some people um Prior to that, in in in, um, in in the 18th century, thought that they were sort of some kind of giant reptile, um, or you could ha- have it as 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 my 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 suggestion is that that they're they're now in keeping with the general sort of biological nature of the e- evolutionary period we live in that they're they're warm-blooded mammals, um, but the problem about it is you can't if you start with the theory about what it is your 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 you're look you're looking at or looking for that may actually shape what you ever, what you get to see mm, yeah um, and the thing to do is and you know i it i i think sometimes it may be better not to have any theories at all um but just to observe as i say what what is actually going on people sometimes say to sort of to novelists or whatever you know what what is your 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 book going to be about or what are you going to write today and they say i don't know because the book hasn't told me hmm. and the point is that, that you have to ex- explore what is what is there and see what comes out of your exploration and not impose your ideas on the world around you let the world impose itself on you and um, and i think maybe that's an important dimension to 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 everybody's thinking um after all, these these you know many of your listeners are are, are keenly engaged in paranormal um, experiences but one of the problems about about it is they, they one has to one has to actually be open to 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 things and not to not to say oh something is paranormal or this is this is quite normal i mean it was it was um it was uh, uh, one of the things about Watson's um, supernature book was the thing that he brought out that, that um, we can't actually know what is paranormal. We can't even know what is supernatural, or as he would have said, um, not a, a level above nature, supernatural. Um, because we, 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 unless we actually know, we don't know enough to know what these things are. Right. It may well be that at some level of, of newer understanding that might emerge, these things are perfectly, they're not paranormal at all, they're perfectly normal, but we just didn't understand them. Hmm. Exactly. Now, you, you kind of joked about your how the field got bigger and you got smaller, um, but talk a little bit about... You know, you. Well, it certainly, it certainly is an expanding. It's a, it was an expanding thing. Hmm. I mean, when I, when I started out, we'd say in 1960, and um, I'll just, I'll just, uh, we'll take about Loch Ness now. There was, um, there was a book published in 1934 about Loch Ness by by Rupert T. Gould. 
The next book about Loch Ness wasn't published until 1954. <laughs> and then the next book after that, that was by Constance White, the next book after that was one published about 19... Um, uh, it was, was Tim Dinsdale, and then there was another one by Morris Burton. And so uh, suddenly a whole uh, a group emerged in the 1960s. And then about, I suppose it must be about 1965 or thereabouts, um, the whole thing be began to expand. Now, one of the differences about these books was that the, the Rupert Gould and uh, Mrs. White and, and Morris Burton and Tim Dinsdale, they were actually by people who were had been investigating the whole pro the whole problem. One of the things was that as soon as that the the the, the 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 there seemed to be a market there, publishers began producing books to meet the market, to fill the market niche, and therefore a different kind of quality emerged. You got books that were rather sort of. Um, um, uh, you know, uh, pasted together, sort of, you know, cut and paste books, instant books, journalistic books, sensational books, books that sort of, um, you know, sort of um, reduced a, a very complicated story to a two-page uh, synopsis of of, uh, of of an event, and and so that that um, a large, even though that a lot of the books were published. The, the quality of them went down. The more books that are published, the, the poorer they get. And the, I mean, it's a, you can see it. You only have to go into your local Barnes and Noble to be able to see that at work. I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think that was that 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 affected the thing. Now, and in among all those, what well, there were uh, still excellent books based on a lot of research and a lot of inquiry, and also in a sense, um, there, there were. You know, you had to also leave a space for people, people with 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 new ideas. We'll say, like some some writer like John Keel, perhaps, that um, have sort of bizarre, what seem to be bizarre ideas, but then actually sort of just a larger idea of what is actually possible. Hmm. But then there's an awful lot of people out there um, so who are prepared to to exploit people. You know, is is. Um, one of my other interests is is, is Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, and one of my other book, one of my more recent books was a book about Conan Doyle as a, as a criminologist, as interest in crime, as a theme through his life. But in the last years of his, the last thirteen years of his life, he seriously devoted himself to spiritualism. Now, not to psychical research so much as to actual spiritualism, mm -hmm. and it was a very sad decline, in a sense, to to. to uh, um, because he moved from being what the original psychic researchers had been, which was investigators, into somebody who was trying to establish a kind of a, a, a cult of belief. Uh, you know, it, there was a whole new dimension came into it. But be, and beyond Conan Doyle, then, there were all the people who were so busy exploiting people's desire after the Great War to actually, which were now celebrating the centenary of, mm -hmm. to, 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 um, to, to exploit the, 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 the losses of the Great War, which were so horrendous, um, to, 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 to people's anxiety to communicate with, as they hoped, with loved ones they, they'd actually lost. So these elements that are work, the investigator, the cultist, and the exploiter, I think you'll find those in every and the every area that that um, 
and among the exploiters, you probably have to 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 to, to put some some um, some um, some some publishers. But even even in each area, there'd still be worthwhile stuff, which is why one has to go through it all. But one has to be aware that one is one is dealing with a, a very broad spectrum of things. And I I think that I mean uh, running a show that you 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 do, you must meet all kinds of. <laughs> All kinds of people with all kinds of different ideas, but eventually all these different kind of ideas will actually some way or other, the ideas that are of value will probably last and those that are just tentative or unfounded will fade away. Absolutely, yeah, I've come to notice that over the years uh, doing the show. Now, I guess to uh, to circle back on that question, though, it's like what made you... You wrote In Search of Lake Monsters. I believe you had a follow-up book, but I'm not Paul. Well, I did. I had another book that I did called The Magic Zoo, mm, which yes, explored the nature of, um, which was an exploration of, of the natural, it was called, subtitled, the, the Natural History of Imaginary Animals. Mm. And it was dealing with sort of what you call classic, creatures like like, like the, the, the phoenix and the unicorn and whatever and explaining the roots of them in, in some kind of in natural history. Now, less in natural history than in, in other elements of sort of mythology and whatever. And that was the point. that was based on the idea that I had was that they would be based on, on, on that, that, that these creatures emerged out of some natural fact that would then be um, that would then be sort of uh, um, translated into new idea. Take, for instance, the the, the phoenix. Um, the the phoenix is a sort of a bird that was said to sort of, um, you know, in, in, in an Arabian bird that built a nest and then laid an egg and then was sort of consumed by its own fire, or whatever. Yeah. But the thing about it, it, it seemed to be a strange. It, it didn't. There were various ideas that that. Um, it, uh, archaeologists and historians had about what the phoenix was and how it relates to ancient Egyptian religion or whatever. But the underlying biological fact, which was actually observed only clearly in the, in the 1950s by Dr. Morris Burton in England, was that in fact some birds do actually go in for a procedure that he called bird anting. That they actually connect ants and they rub them all over their, their, their their, their their body in order to sort of have the effect of the formic acid, yeah. but that they also used to perform this with um, sitting in a in a in a fire that they 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 they'd sort of bathe in the in the in the actual smoke in a way, um, and he 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 sort of illustrated this by the relationship between sort of birds' nests going on fire in thatched cottages. Um, and that 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 actually fire and birds in a, a a biological situation that could be defined were associated just as they had been in the ancient legend of the phoenix. Hmm. Now that insight into what might have been the source of the original origin of the the phoenix myth. Yeah. And um, was based on, 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 on a, 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 bi a biological observation of an exact kind. Hmm. Now the same is, to some extent, is true, for instance, of the, the, the legend of the unicorn. The, the legend of the unicorn has got itself confused because in medieval times when, when, uh, the Greenland coast became open to trade, um, 
or one might call it sort of unacknowledged North American trade, perhaps, of, um, and um, narwhal horns were brought down from the Arctic and spread through Europe. They were very rare, and the, the King of France had one, which you can now see in the Cluny Museum in Paris, that he paid a sort of huge fortune of. And these narwhal horns were seen to be unicorn horns, which is why the unicorn in so many pictures is a spiral a spiral horn, and they were used for testing the king's food for for poison. <laughs> but underlying this story of the the unicorn is the fact that in parts of the world, the known to the classical world in or in Africa and the and the, the the Near East, the leaders of herds would actually not they they would they 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 they. The, the two horns would be taken off, they would be cut together, and a, a single horned animal would be created as a herd leader. Huh. And this was, this was actually only, only real, fully realized and experimented on biologically by an American scientist in Vermont in the 1920s. Um, and so this, this, the, generally the book, the book explores this kind of the natural fact, the natural history facts that underlie things. Now, I, I'd hope to actually get a new edition of this out in, in due course. But, um, after that, however, the, 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 the um, uh, I, I, I had also pursued, um, English literature studies at the University of Michigan. And so then I was actually writing in between these books, um, a, a book about the, the, the literature of the Irish Revolution and then literary studies of um, Joyce and, and Flann O'Brien and other Irish writers. So eventually in the pressure, the pressure of things, they, 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 that direction was the one that was followed in, in publishing rather than the, the cryptozoology one. Um, um, but the point is that from the doing all that other kind of research, I, I learned new techniques of research and I sort of kept up my interest to some extent in cryptozoology, um, which is basically why the, the book has come back into print. Um, and I think I possibly would, would, would um, have written from time to time on some aspects of it, uh, but articles only rather than books. So perhaps um, if, if, I, if I ever eventually get to retire, I might write, write a few more cryptozoological books in, in, in retirement. Um, but in my mind, in a way, everything you do is connected up. I, I don't think we're quite, you know, I mean, I'd look, as I was saying to you earlier, looking at this book, there's this um, references to Conan Doyle and to the Lost World and to Jules Verne and to Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea, mm-hmm. and, and that basically they they relate to other interests, other interests that I have. So one thing feeds on another, and something that you may learn from one thing you're researching will suddenly enlighten you as to as to the something as um, something else. Um, it's only academics that you meet and you ask them about something and say, "Oh, I wouldn't know about that. That's not my field." <laughs> um, but but a writer like myself, who's who sort of is a, a an actor, not 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 in an academic post, or writes for, for writes for 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 a, a freelance writer. Um, um, there is no such thing. What I want every any and nothing is alien to one, if so to speak. Um, um, if one is if one is a, a freelance writer, and mm. everything feeds into everything else, and everything connects, you know. So decompartmentalizing is is rather like putting um, the material that makes up the world into prison cells. You know, you 
you've yeah. got your mass murderers there and your 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 sex offenders there and sort of <laughs> you never mix them up and sort of thing. Whereas in fact in real life everything is mixed up. You know, and, 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 you know, your, your celebrated poltergeist may be working in a, in a, in a, at work in a sort of ordinary suburban house rather than a, a traditional haunted mansion. Exactly. Um, now is there any, you know, people tend to think of these things, these, these lake monster cases as sort of like tales from the past. Is there anything in recent times that has caught your attention where you're like, wow, this is well, really I, I, interesting? I don't think by any means that these are, are tales from the past. Right, this is, right. This is part of the problem. I mean, there are a few magazines, for instance, like 14 Times, um, and a few writers like, 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 again, like Lauren Coleman, who go on assiduously reporting things based. Um, it's just, I think that, that, Things have 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 changed um, in the way that things actually get reported. Um, I think that certainly strange creatures remain to be be, be found, um, and I think that that um, you know that it, it it requires uh, it just requires a, a different approach. And I think that it's up to sort of the media to change its. Um, its 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 habits. I I think in a way that that the media has actually um, narrowed down the range of interests that it thinks that people have. I, I, you know, I, I think, so. I think they, I think they think the people won't be interested in anything uh, 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 unless they they sort of jazz it up completely. Hmm. And I think that's a great a great pity. I don't know whether it's to do with the the change in the way people are educated or whether it's the, the interest in people generally or the effect of sort of, um, I, I put it, I, I'd suggest it's probably people who um, are, 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 are provided with too much sport on television and it occupies too much time. <laughs> and, and I think if you had less, personally, personally, I, I could never see, how, how this will offend some of your, 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 your listeners, I could never in my life see the point of American football. And I think <laughs> if less time were, if less time were devoted to American football on, on television around the world and probably soccer, there would be more time for, 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 for interesting reports about cryptozoology. Mm. Now, did, but, 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 there's one sort of uh, theory. I've never, uh, I, 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 we didn't even, I didn't see this in the notes really, but it uh, kind of just crossed my mind when you were talking about that, where it's like, you know, um, just sort of a school of thought in some uh, circles of cryptozoology, um, more on the fringes really than, than in the mainstream uh, realm of cryptozoology, that that there's sort of like a conspiracy to cover all this stuff up, that, that, they, that, that they don't want people to know. I don't know why they wouldn't want people to know about uh, lake monsters, but because um, they're not necessarily monsters, really. They're well, just animals. I, I think, what I do think, you think of that think, theory? Well, I, I think I can understand exactly where that comes from. And I think it has to do with this question that, that I was sort of saying about academics responding. They sort of, oh, it's not my field, or, or they, they want to sort of, as I was saying earlier, they want to preserve their thing. And they give the appearance of, of, um, one of the things about, uh, um, you know, is, is that, that, that uh, if you ask, if, if a newspaper rings up a, 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 an, an academic in a local, in a local university and asks him, what do you think of a Bigfoot? He will inevitably have a response. Because he won't, he won't, he'd love, he likes to see his name in print kind of thing. <laughs> but the problem about it is that then his response is, is bound to be kind of negative, as you, as you, as you can appreciate, it largely is. And that gives the impression of people who have, whose experience of 
events is different. They say, how can he believe that this is, this is what actually happened? They, that there must be some reason why he's not actually admitting that. Um, and, and that gives rise to the idea, well, maybe that, maybe that they just don't want it, 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 it talked about. And I think perhaps that's, that's the, 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 the um, you know, people, uh, the, the, then that gives people the idea that, well, there's a kind of conspiracy to, to, um, Cover it up. You know, not to, not, uh, not, not, not to reveal these things. But I can't imagine, you know, why, why, um, why, uh, as you say, that why anybody would want to, to not, not to sort of reveal all they know about lake monsters. Right. Um, I can well understand why they might want to reveal all they know about the FBI or something. But, um, <laughs> yeah. That's, um, you know, it's, 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 it's a, a very, a very, a very strange thing. Um, you know, or, or, I, I, I when I, when I, I, I lived, I, I was living in America when, when the report on the Kennedy assassination came out. Mm. And the problem about that was at one stage I was quite interested in that and was certainly, uh, but as time went on, um, I, I sort of had to give up reading books about the, 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 the Warren Commission and, and the Kennedy assassination. Yeah. Because it became, I, one couldn't just hold, hold it in your mind. And the same thing happened with, with the, um, case of Jack the Ripper, because I lived in London for some years, and, and near, actually, the East End where all these murders took place. And at that time, there were only about four books about Jack the Ripper. Now there are a whole libraries about them, yeah. exactly the same thing as, as, as about cryptozoology. Um, but again, the one of the, that moved from sort of people assiduously trying to investigate it to, to show what had actually really happened. And so now the most extravagant theories about conspiracy or about involving the royal family and God Russian and the Russian intelligence and God knows what. I mean, I, I mean, like, like, like the Warren Commission books, I have failed to keep up with Jack the Ripper. So, um, I think I, I, I the, 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 Keep more or less keep up with lake monsters to some extent, but there are some subjects that just get too big for you to actually be able to understand. Mm, exactly, um, yeah. and I think that uh, that's just too imposing. But I can't. Uh, I think um, some people get the impression that 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 um, you know people don't want to divulge inf- information, but and, and it isn't actually the case. It's 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 because sometimes people don't actually. Have any information to divulge? Mm, yeah, um, uh, you know that's the point about acad- asking some academics what they think about you know sort of lake monsters. They really haven't actually looked at the evidence at all. They don't know the history of it. They haven't. They they they've assumed a certain number of things that they've read from um, skeptical popularizations. And, and they, they react on that basis to, to a current report. And it's actually not doing anybody any kind of good service at all because mm. it's not a, it's not a truly critical report. And, and sometimes they would be more honest if they said, I simply don't know because I haven't studied the subject. Well, they'll never um, say that. <laughs> what? Well, they'll never say that, but you know, that's, that's, that's the truth of the matter, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and the problem about it is it, it, there's no conspiracy out there. Um, it's, 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 it's just a failure to admit ignorance. Exactly. That, it, that's, you're probably more. It's probably more in keeping with what's really going on than than a grand conspiracy. Uh, but well, yes, I, I suspect I suspect it is. And and, and the other thing is, a, it's very difficult to with all these big subjects. 
we can only actually perhaps grasp one small area of it and there's then those other areas that, that we haven't grasped may be where the key to the solution actually lies and that the, the solution is probably quite a, quite a, you know, quite a simple one. Mm. Um, but because we can never grasp at one time all the facts in our mind, the, the solution just eludes us constantly. Yeah. And therefore people feel for so frustrated that they say, oh, that there's a conspiracy to, to keep it, to keep it all quiet. Mm. Um, um, so I'm afraid I, I, you know, and then, but on the general point about people say, they talk hazily about conspiracy theories, you know, there's no, there's no, conspiracies aren't a theory. People do conspire. I mean, you just only have to look at, 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 at the course of English history, for instance, and you'll see the constant conspiracies. Yeah. I mean, they, they, what would you call it? Cutting off the head of the king? I do this and that, that would be a conspiracy. Um, <laughs> you know, and all history is filled with conspiracies. So why would they suddenly have stopped sort of 20 years ago, you know, or, um, when some new administration comes into power? Of course, people want to conceal um, facts from people. Largely, I suspect, in the case of, of governments, because they don't want to reveal to, to people how badly they've spent most of the money they've spent. But there's <laughs> yeah, or the laws they've broken. Yeah, um, yes, but in the case, in the general case of of, of lake monsters and and, and cryptological matters, um, generally, I think that the more we know, the better it'll be. Um, but I, and I, I think, as I was saying, strange creatures remain to be found. But my my major thought these days would be that um, with the way that we're sort of treating the world around us, and, and, and not only through climate change, but also through human violence and, and, and the general destructiveness of people and what they do, um, and, and it, that that they, they were so altering the world that the world is is changing rapidly. And, and these mysterious creatures will, will cease to be mysterious for the simple reason that they've become extinct before we actually found anything out about them. Yeah. Well, it's a challenge. I, I've had Adam Davies on the show. He's a he's a big-time researcher of the uh, Orang Pendek in Sumatra, and he makes the same point that yeah. we, we need to, you know, we, we time may run out before we get the chance to, to finally get to the bottom of these things, which is a sad, yeah, a really I, sad I, I don't think people, I don't think people actually fully realize that how change is affecting people's, people's, that affects their lives. I mean, um, you, you hardly, you know, my wife has sort of said, you know, they, they demolished, they demolished some houses that you knew 20 years ago. And then, you know, six months later when they built something, you, you, you have difficulty even remembering what the original looked like. And that's the problem where we're sort of so changing the world that we've now begun to lose sight of what it originally looked like. You know, I, I think probably stuck in my mind that there's, that there's an idea of the world as how it probably looked about nine, about 1933 when the Loch Ness monster was big part, uh, came on the scene because um, it is, it, you know, um, one can't possibly keep keep trace with all the changes in these in these countries um, and, and and the way in which they they look at it. Africa, which uh, potentially for for Mr. Pittman was was filled with mysterious animals, is now a, a totally almost totally urbanised country where where um, you know where where the where villages have been abandoned for great conurbations, and mm. so that's that's you know 
the, the, uh, natural, the, the natural Africa of the past is, is sort of dying away before one's eyes. It's maddening in a way. Like, like we were saying here, time may run out before we get the chance to, uh, to really get to the bottom of this thing. And time is running out on our conversation here because we've gone a couple hours. Now, what do you, do you plan on doing anything else? I mean, this, this work was, in a way, it's kind of nice. It's like you put out this seminal work and you're kind of, you're, <laughs> you've got all of your life. Well, it's nice that you're doing something that's sort of, is still alive sort of so long after you've actually done the work on it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I can tell you, it doesn't, uh, any writer will tell you, it doesn't apply to all the books you write, you know. <laughs> um, you know, so so, but it does does that. There's a handful of them out that that's that's hopefully will get on. I would I would certainly dearly like to do a new a new edition of of um, of the Magic Zoo um, and try and sort of bring it back with with, with larger illustrations and what and, and whatever. So I think that might be a, a project that I would that I would put in in put in hand um, one way one way or another. But I'm also doing a trying to to, to do a new edition of my Conan. Doyle book as Conan Doyle as a criminologist, which is again a thing about investigation, and I suspect that if there's one constant theme in my in all the things that I've done, they're all dependent on a process of investigating and researching something. Hmm. Um, and it's it's possibly it's possibly something to the fact due to the fact that research and, and investigation is something that you can actually do on your own. So it's probably due down to some loner complex in my mind that I'd like to work on my own rather than in, in, a, in a company sort of thing, you know, which hmm. is why one is a, a, a freelance writer, I suspect. Now, you alluded to possibly, I thought you were kind of alluding to possibly doing something about regarding or covering or looking at the uh, the paranormal element to all this. Is that something that's crossed your mind? Maybe, well, that, maybe was, that, that was the one of the things that, that you, you were saying about the, at the book. I think that was the one element in the book that was possibly weak, that at the, at the time I, I, I didn't give it sufficient uh, thought. Um, I think it might be something that I would see in a larger dimension now. Um, but, you know, I think that this, we, 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 we sort of, um, we tend sometimes to see ourselves as being outside nature rather than part of nature. And I think that this cryptozoology, if it does anything, ought to actually make people aware that our processes of thought and, and, and imagination influence how we see the world and appreciate the world, and they're actually integrated sides of the one of the one thing, um, and that that um, it's something that I would certainly like to explore more and to try and understand for myself in a, in a sense because it's um, it's it's a very it's a very mysterious kind of kind of thing and I, I you know I, being Irish and living in a country like Ireland that's steeped in sort of folklore and and, and, and mythology and um, you know you can't live in the, the, the country of sort of, of WB Yeats and sort of um, just thinking things are, are, are that, that, that the whole world is made of concrete sort of thing yeah. um, you know there has to be there has to be a dimension for the imagination and the imagination is is, 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 is a, a factor of evolution and of life itself. Very interesting. Yeah, very. That's profound. That would be where I where I would go. I would sort of try and combine a little more of W. B. Yeats with 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 Bernard Hoverman's, and that would be a future project. Nice, nice. Well, I look forward to that. Um, well, in the forty years since you wrote the book, I mean, 
we talked about how cryptozoology got bigger and you kind of um you went off to do other adventures and other books and stuff. Are you happy with sort of well, how there were more people there were more people dealing with the problems that I that that I had pioneered and I think it's bound to that's bound to produce uh, something something new and mm, you know, absolutely. It, 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 yeah, yeah, and that's a good thing. Well that's what I was gonna ask yeah. you. Are you kind of like what's your take, I guess? You know, because you were right there at the beginning with some of these early, you know, the first first folks to sort of uh, really be doing this stuff. What's your take on sort of how this research field has evolved over the years? Are you happy with where it's at now? Do you think it needs to change? Do you think it needs to do something differently? I mean, what's your what's your perspective on sort of the, the evolution of this field well, over the four I, last I, years? I I think there's I think there's a point about 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 it, and uh, going back to the question of parapsychology for a minute. When the, the novelist um, Arthur Kessler died, he left his money for a, a chair of parapsychology, which went to a Scottish university, where somebody would be engaged in studying the, 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 the sort of parapsychology. Now, it hasn't taken the course that he anticipated, but one of the things I would certainly like to see is that, that I think more of the, the um, more of the, the cryptozoology, zoological research needs to be incorporated into the sort of mainstream of academic research. But for that to happen, academic research has to open itself up to, um, you know, to, 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 to a wider, a wider spectrum of, of what it is we can legitimately study. And that's, that's, that's important. I think it's, it's, it's one of the disappointments that, that, um, the work that was sort of done by people like Bernard Holdmans and, and other people like Rupert Gould and Mrs. White and, and whatever and Lauren Corbin or whatever, it doesn't, it, it still remains a kind of outside of the, 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 the accepted boundaries of, of, of what constitutes academic research. Right. Um, and I think that's a disappointment. One would have thought that after this time that it would have actually sort of, um, uh, actually there would have been a response that it would have made, enabled an integration of the two attitudes. Mm, absolutely, yeah. That's what you hope for, but... You well, know, I has... think that applies to a lot, a lot of areas of research, perhaps, mm. too, that are... You know that present difficulties, and um, you know, the, the, so I, it, um, it 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 will be something that would apply to to many of the other topics that your listeners are interested in. Absolutely, absolutely. All right. Well, I've taken up a lot of your time here, so I'll I'll, I'll sort of wrap it up here. Well, I've, I've taken up an equally large amount of your airtime. So <laughs> I've appreciated it. I really have. I hope it. Uh, hope it'll be entertaining enough for your, for for your listeners and um, and, and whatever. And they'll they find some. I think find some benefit in, in reading the book, but it'll take them into areas I think that they hardly appreciated existed if they do read it. Mm, absolutely, they should. Definitely check it out. I was going to say, you know, it's not very often that I get the chance to have somebody on the show who's written a seminal book in the field. So it's really, it was a thrill for me to get the chance to talk to you and, and, and present this work here and get your perspective on on the changes and, and sort of the state of all this and how things have evolved and, and really the root of these mysteries. So I've really, Peter, your wisdom is is unparalleled here in a lot of ways. And, I, you know, it's just a real treat to be able to share it and, and get it on the record here for the listeners, you know. Well, it's been it's been an entertaining evening for me too. So, um, and I hope for your listeners, and um, I hope they'll all be encouraged to get out in their canoe in their nearest lake and see what they can see. Absolutely. 
So there you go, folks. Uh, the book, of course, is In Search of Lake Monsters. You can find out more about that at anomalistbooks.com. Peter, thank you so much once again for coming on the show. I really do appreciate it. Not at all. It's my joy. Thanks.